Hello, and welcome to Department 12, where we talk about everything IO Psych. I'm your host, Dr. Ben Butina, and joining me today is Professor Carol Kulik, Research Professor of Human Resource Management at the University of South Australia. How are you today, Carol? I'm real good. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing really good, too. Thanks for asking. So along with Alyssa Perry, you co-authored a book called Human Resources for the Non-HR Manager, which is now in its second edition. So let's start here. Who is this book for? Uh, what do you mean exactly by the non-HR manager? That's a great starting question, Ben. Whenever I'm asked that question, my answer is always, I wrote it for my brother-in-law. So my brother-in-law's name is John. And when he graduated from university, he got a job working for a steel company in Chicago as a salesperson. And so his responsibility was selling steel products to industry clients. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that John was great at his job. He was kind of a natural salesperson. He was really good at getting to know customers and understanding their needs. And he was so good at his job that he got promoted to sales manager. <laughs> and that's when he started calling me. <laughs> and he would, <laughs> he would ask these questions like, Carol, I don't understand it. I hired these people who were great on paper. And now that they're on the job, they're just not working out. What do I do? <laughs> or Carol, next week I have to do performance reviews. And what do I do when somebody really isn't performing well and I have to give them negative feedback, but I don't want to demotivate them? Or the worst call of all was when he said, Carol, the steel company's in financial trouble. And next week, I have to go in and tell my team that half of them are going to lose their jobs. And I just realized that there are so many people like my brother-in-law, John. You know, I don't think that most 12-year-olds or 15-year-olds wake up in the morning and say, ooh, I can't wait to be a manager, right? Um, <laughs> people end up in managerial roles, and they realize that they're doing HR on the ground. They're managing people every day, and they're not, they don't get the kind of preparation that they need for it. Suppose that you go to bed tonight, but when you wake up tomorrow morning, you're in a different world. It's exactly like our world, except that everyone in your target audience has read this book, Human Resources for the Non-HR Manager, and they've applied what they've learned. So how is that world different than the one we live in now? I think it's a world that is much more mindful of the implications of people management. You know, I think a lot of managers act directly from their gut. They go on their instinct. And we know that in a lot of cases, our instinct can mislead us. I think that if individual managers knew a bit more about the research and could apply the research in their daily lives, I think it'd make a dramatic difference in terms of employee well-being and in turn make a really big difference in terms of workplace productivity and performance. You talked about the references, like if you could help new managers especially understand sort of the research. And that's one thing you notice about this book right away is that it is extremely well documented, especially for a book that's written for you know, a popular audience, presumably. Was there any like pushback from a publisher or anything about that approach? Well, I don't think there was much pushback because this is a second edition. And we knew that the first edition had found a niche, had found interest. I think what's really important about the book, as you described, is that it kind of straddles the line. There's plenty of research in there, 
but we tried to make it really conversational. We wanted it to be the kind of book that my brother-in-law, John, could pick up as he needed it and find the relevant content and know that there was depth of science behind it. When I got a review copy of the book, as I often do when I'm bringing somebody on as a guest, my intention, to be 100% honest, was to skim, you know, just to skim the book and see, you know, what I could glean from it that could help do some, some research on the interview. But, you know, I read the preface and the introduction and I just started going and I couldn't stop. And I realized, like, this is really good book for an audience that I care an awful lot about, which is new managers. And it's funny that you should mention your brother-in-law, John, because the other sort of use for this book that I thought of is this would be great for answering those kinds of questions from people who know that you're an IO psychologist, but don't realize that you're actually, you know, just an expert on this little tiny corner of the whole domain. They think, you know, what's your advice, your evidence-based advice for me as a manager, period. This would be a great book to have at your side in doing so. So I guess I picked up on something there. It is very conversational and at the same time, extremely like rigorous and well-documented. I had asked earlier, I think, you know, was this ever adapted like a training program? And you mentioned that it was almost born out of a course, wasn't it? Absolutely. Ever since I started my academic career, I've been teaching mostly MBA audiences. And, you know, MBA is a very generalist kind of degree. Most students take a class, a couple classes in management, some classes in finance, some classes in accountancy. And a lot of those people don't really see management as their core focus, right? You know, they, they have a particular interest in, like I said, finance or accountancy or something like that. And so I always felt that the courses that I was teaching in human resource management, in diversity management, and those kinds of topics, they were courses that students didn't necessarily see the value of in the moment. But five years later, they'd say, oh, thank goodness we covered that in my course. So I started trying to keep track of those things and thinking about different ways to translate our research to an audience that didn't see themselves as human resource managers, that didn't see themselves as having that identity. Speaking of books and writing books, what do most people misunderstand about that process? I think people think that writing a book is a really fast process. And it certainly wasn't in my case. Maybe I'm a particularly slow writer. But I think it takes a while to find the right shape of an individual chapter. I think that's one of the things that Alyssa and I do quite well together. We share a general vision. We're both really interested in making sure that the research is very translatable and reaches the right audience. Alyssa works in a program at Teachers College. Columbia University, where a lot of her students are not going to become academics. They're mm -hmm. going to go out into professional roles. And so she's, she always has that kind of translation focus. One thing is this idea that it's a slow process. You have to keep talking it through. You have to really know where it is that you're trying to get to. But the other thing that I've learned about writing a book, then is that once you find your voice, that voice like really sticks with you. So I was really pleased when you told me that, you know, you got caught up in the book and you were actually kind of reading it rather than skimming because we really did want it to be conversational. We wanted it to be the kind of book that you could sit down with a cup of coffee and actually enjoy reading as opposed to kind of slogging through a textbook. 
but now that I have that voice, it's very hard to put on my uh, <laughs> academic voice for writing for an academic journal. It all comes out a little chatty, <laughs> very <laughs> conversational. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'd like love to see more journal articles written in the kind of style that you've adapted for the book. This is the second edition of this book. And I think that one of the, the changes or updates that, that you and Alyssa made for the second edition was a little more focus on international HR. I wonder from your perspective, is, is human resource management converging, becoming more homogenous like internationally? Hmm, let me think on that for a minute. Uh, maybe, maybe before I directly answer your question, let me just sort of comment that I was writing the first edition when I was still based in the United States. And then the book came out and I moved to Australia. And you know how there's that saying about how a fish doesn't know that it's wet? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a really good saying for people who make international moves. You know, until you make an international move, it's really hard to appreciate how much your viewpoint has been affected by the place you were located. And so I think that in IO psychology, in human resource management, I think a lot of times we don't realize how much our perception of that activity is colored by the country that we're working in. So I didn't really appreciate how much my perception of human resource management was being affected by my understanding of United States employment law. But when you can get some distance from that, you realize that even though different countries have different laws, they're kind of based on the same principles. So, for example, we talk a bit about downsizing in the book. Mm -hmm. And if I was just writing for an American audience, I'd be talking about the WARN Act, right? And, you know, how yeah. much advance notice you have to give there. But really, that's just a specific example of trying to give people enough notice that it feels fair and that they have time right. to prepare for what they need to do or taking the time to think about the criteria you're going to use to identify the people who you're going to have to give the bad news to. And so I think that thinking about the book for an international audience has really motivated us to go back one step further and say, well, it's not about the law, which the law is often seen as a constraint. It tells you what you can't do, but going back to the principles, which I think is a much more positive and proactive message, right? Here's what you're trying to accomplish in each situation. So that's kind of my take where the international piece fits in. My sense is that the different laws are based on similar principles. So maybe you're right. Maybe it is becoming a bit more homogenous. How does this sort of fit into your overall career? So You've got a ton of publications. You do research in the areas of, you know, older workers, mm -hmm. mature age workers, better working arrangements in, in light of, you know, COVID-19. How does all this fit in for you? That was a lovely example, Ben, by the way, just a vocabulary. In the United States, we tend to say older workers, mature age yeah. workers is much more likely in Australia. Yeah. So, you know, it kind of starts to blur. But I think that the book is a really good illustration of something that's a common thread throughout my work. I'm really interested in understanding how we have these really big problems. You know, uh, we often talk about the grand challenges of employee demographics, changes in the labor force, big 
pandemics like COVID and how that dramatically changes the workforce. But I feel like you have to sort of couple those big challenges and the big solutions with the really small things that individual people can do on the ground. You know, on my LinkedIn profile, I have this little tagline about how we're making the world a better place, one workplace, one manager at a time. And I really do believe that. You know, I, I think that the, the common thing across all of my research is, so what can an individual manager do, given that you're working in an environment that's super complicated, where there's been these major disruptions? And I think line managers in particular have it really hard. You know, we know, and there's, there's great data on this, that line managers today are supervising more people than managers that came before them. They're doing it with smaller budgets, but they're doing it in much more complex work environments. So to me, it all kind of hangs together pretty well. I know that your undergraduate degree is in industrial and organizational psychology, right? but your doctorate is in business administration. Is that right? That's right. What are the differences between those two worlds? Yeah, that's a really great question. It's something that I really grappled with when I was making the decision to go to graduate school. My PhD is in business administration, but I was trained in um, a department that had a very psychological focus, even though it was based in the business school. And I got both of those degrees at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And so literally was moving from one building, the psychology building, walking like two or three blocks down to the business school. And yet for me, I was so frightened of that change, right? Because I think sometimes in psychology, we think of the managers as the bad guys, right? You know, they're the ones who are making these decisions that create a lot of stress for employees, or they're thinking about company profits and not having enough of an employee focus. And so, you know, you sometimes have the sense that you're like really crossing over to the dark side if <laughs> you move from industrial organizational psychology over to HR. But for me, that transition felt really permeable. And it really made me appreciate that there was so much work being done within business schools under this HR kind of umbrella that was really about making workplaces better. And so, honestly, we're all on the same side. We're all trying to accomplish the same sort of thing. Where I see the real big difference is not in the goals, but I see differences in the what that we study. When I talk to my colleagues who have a more intense training in psychology, I think they're more likely to study employees. So what are the employee reactions? So they might go out and do a survey of employees. I think my colleagues in business schools who have an HR degree are more likely to study managers. So what are managers doing to create those reactions? And so the two things have to kind of converge, right? If we're going to change yeah. workplaces, we have to know what the managerial actions are that create those responses. And, you know, we have to keep moving back and forth. So I think they, they marry pretty well. There's actually a really good synergy. I think IOPsych is sometimes very focused on building the tools, you know, so designing selection instruments, for example, yeah. whereas HR is more about, okay, now that I've got the tool or, 
you know, how do I choose the tool from a vendor? And now that I have it, how do I actually use it? So it, it does focus a bit on different steps in the process as well. Should IO psychologists care more about labor history than we do? Yes. I think that's kind of an easy question. <laughs> I think that in our field, we do tend sometimes to reinvent the wheel, but the wheels get more and more complicated as we go along. You know, a lot of my background is in job design. And when I go back to some of the classic job design theories, you know, there's some pretty basic principles there about what makes work meaningful and rewarding. And sometimes I look at the literature now and I see those same principles, but they're getting more complex. And I think that starts to make them harder for individual managers, individual organizations to apply them. So yeah, I think knowing where we came from is, is really useful, is really important. What, if anything, do you miss about Pittsburgh? I lived in Shadyside. And one of the things that fascinated me about Pittsburgh is that it was super neighborhoody. Every little neighborhood had a really charming name, like Shadyside or Squirrel Hill. It sounded like something out of a Disney movie, like just such, such attractive titles for neighborhoods. And every neighborhood had its own sort of restaurants and movie theater and personality. And so living in Shadyside, the thing that I really miss was a restaurant called Pamela's. And, uh, they, had, and they had the most wonderful pancakes. I ate a lot of pancake when I lived in Pittsburgh. Well, Carol, thank you so much for sharing the story of writing the book of Human Resources for the Non-HR Manager and, and progressing on to the second edition. We'll have some links to where folks can buy the book in the show notes and links to your profile out on LinkedIn as well. Is there any other place that listeners can reach you if they like? So I'd really love to direct listeners to our books website www.nonhrmanager.com. And that's a great place to read a sample chapter. You can browse some of the activities that we've developed to accompany the book. And you can reach me or Alyssa directly through the links on the website. Great. Thank you so much, Carol. And I hope the rest of your day is great. Thanks, Ben. It was lovely talking to you.